0: Well, we're going to have a prayer, and then we're going to be seated. Now, let me just real quickly tell you a couple. I'm going to come down here so I'm on ground level with you. But um, a couple things about the book. One, if if you do have the book, you'll notice that on either side, on the left-hand side, there's a really wide left-hand margin. Same thing on the right side. We left you plenty of space so that you can take notes. I am going to be saying some things that aren't in the book. You know, I'm a little bugged with myself because even today I saw some things I should have put in the book. The good thing about it is we published it so I can do whatever I want with the next printing and it looks like the next printing is coming pretty quick, so I'll I'll add it. So I'll try to tell you when we get to some things that um, aren't in the book. But take notes and um, thank God paper never forgets. Amen. Amen. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the revelation of St. John the Divine. Thank you, Lord, that you gave John this revelation so that we tonight would understand the times, so that we would be in anticipation of your return, so that, Lord, we would not be just drifting through life, but we would have focused purpose. And so we thank you for it, Lord, and we pray that tonight, Lord, I need your anointing. I pray that you will anoint me to share, to teach this book, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need ears to hear, Lord, give them to us, eyes to see, hearts to understand. Lord, minister your word on fertile soil tonight. Now, would you breathe a prayer, dear church, and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive, I receive your word engrafted into my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good, and then you can be seated. Amen. It's good to see all of you out on a Wednesday night. And see, I told you you could get here through rush hour traffic. I told you you could. And it's good to see all of you. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of introductory stuff tonight. We're going to get quite a ways, um, but I want to lay a foundation so that we can understand this book, the last book in our Bible. And uh, by and large, I'm going to be going according to the book. So if you've got the book or you're going to see the notes on the screen, I'm going to go primarily with those notes. I will, as I've already said, step aside and and ad-lib some and just share out of my heart but I'm going to stay true to the the, the book that you have so that we can all be on the same page, no pun intended. Okay? The book of Revelation. What an amazing final book of the Bible. To the beloved disciple John, it came, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I thought about it. Jesus might have had this high honor for John in mind in a little conversation that took place after Jesus had risen from the dead. And it's worth reading because we see that Jesus knows your future. He knew the future of Peter, and he knew the future of John, and he says it right here. But just so that we can kind of get a little background on, on how John wound up on that Isle of Patmos and as the recipient of this incredible book, then let's read. John 21, starting at verse 17, Jesus said, feed my sheep. He's talking to Peter now. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else is going to dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. We know that Peter was hung upside down on a cross. Jesus knew what was coming for him because he's God. He knows the end from the beginning. Now, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me, follow me. Peter turned, I love this, there's humor in the Bible. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was was following them. And this is the same one who leaned uh, uh, back against Jesus at the supper, at the first, last supper, and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, that being John, he said, Lord, what about him? You're telling me I'm going to die in this way? That's not fair. What about him? I like what Jesus said. Can I just translate it for you? The the revised Wickwire version? Mind your own business. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Jesus answered and said to him, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Everybody say with me, me, what is that to me? Don't worry about everybody else. Take care of your own stuff. Okay? And but Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know his testimony is true. So it's that disciple, John, who Jesus appeared to with the revelation. In these passages, Jesus predicted that John would live much longer than Peter, and he did. He's the only one of the 12 that was not martyred. He's the only one. In his older years, the aged apostle was banished for preaching Jesus to a lonely island called Patmos for his witness of Jesus Christ. So he was persecuted. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Patmos, where he ended up. Patmos was located in the Aegean Sea, around 60 miles southwest of Ephesus and 100 miles east of Athens. It was a little tiny island about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide. Man, i go around that twice cycling. Easy. It was barren of trees. It was extremely rocky. In other words, it was not a vacation resort. He was banished to a rough place. On this tiling island, John was enslaved in chains. And forced to work the mines of the island with nothing but criminals. Now, I want you to think, this old man had been a fisherman. And then a voice one day said to him, follow me. And he followed that voice of Jesus. And he left all of his fishing gear, all of his craft, and he went off and followed Jesus. And here's where he's ended up, the Isle of Pat- Patmos, a rocky, barren island in chains, working with criminals. There he is for the cause of Christ. Because of John's connection to it, Patmos today is a destination for Christian pilgrimage. Uh, Visitors can see the cave where John is said to have received his revelation. It's called the Cave of the Apocalypse. And several monasteries on the island are dedicated to St. John. And at the time of John's banishment, he was around, get this, 92 years old. Everybody say, God can still use you. Because at 92, he's about to receive the revelation of a lifetime. You're never too old to be used of God. All you older folks say amen. Amen. (laughs) You younger ones mocking, your day's coming. You're right behind us. The early fledgling church of Jesus Christ was experiencing intense persecution at this time. The lunatic Emperor Nero had gone so far as to burn Christians in his garden as human torches. He covered them in black pitch put them on stakes, and burn them alive. And now Domitian was wreaking havoc with the church, another Roman emperor. John's revelation came at a time of an anti-Christian state. Now, we know that our own country is growing more and more anti-Christian. And if you're not aware of that, let me ring your bell tonight. But, But the revelation when, when John received it, he was in a very anti-Christian state, the Roman government, and a multitude of anti-Christian religions. The immediate intent of the revelation, why did he receive it? It was to provide encouragement that Jesus was Lord and in control of things and as an evangelistic appeal to the lost. I want you to imagine this 92-year-old man. Can you imagine 92 being chained up and having to work as a slave at 92? The revelation that God gave to John came to him on just an average, working in the coal mines kind of day. The Bible records that John was spiritually translated by the Spirit of God. Suddenly, the Spirit seized him and began to impart to him a vision that is 22 chapters long. He was given a succession of visions so incredible that they have boggled the minds of believers to this day. Trust me, it's still controversial. What I'm teaching is very controversial. There are many pastors who won't touch this, though they should, and I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. The revelation has reached far beyond John's day and has rolled down to the very end of time and into eternity, and it is with us tonight. And as we study this amazing book, let me show you some things that we're going to see. We're going to see Jesus Christ as Lord and Master of all history. We're going to see an accurate prediction of the rise and fall of entire world empires. We're going to see an incredible cosmic battle between forces of light and forces of darkness. We're going to see, folks, 21 terrible judgments falling on a Christ-rejecting world, and not one of them has begun yet, though I believe we're close. We're going to see an evil anti-Christian, anti-Christ society set up by the most diabolical, evil, wicked ruler to ever set foot on the world stage. You know him as Antichrist. We're going to see the establishment of a one-world economy, one-world religion, and a one-world political system. And really, when I look out there, all of those things that I just read in that last point, all of them are, the world is set up for all three right now. We're going to see the total destruction of the Antichrist and his world system, and that's a great part of Revelation because this wicked ruler who looks like he's got the world by the tail is going to lose it quickly. We're going to see the worst war in the history of all mankind. You've heard of it, the War of Armageddon. It makes World War I and II look like Romper Room. We're going to see the glorious return of Christ, not as the lamb, but as the lion of Judah. Amen. We're going to see a thousand years of peace under the rule of Christ. What a day that will be. We're going to see a final brief rebellion against him and then the final great white throne judgment of sinners, which is one of the most sobering, if not the most sobering portion of Scripture in the entire Bible when the great white throne is described. Now, let me give you some keys to understanding the revelation. The main theme of the revelation is the second coming of Christ found in chapter 1, Verse 7, that is the main theme. Here's what it says. Behold, he is coming. Can we say that all together? Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Get this, even they who pierced him, because they will be raised from the dead to behold him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. In verse 19, John is instructed by Jesus, and this is very key. He said, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. This is not in your book. So this is what you write in the margins. I'll put it in the next one. But notice what he says. He says, John, I'm about to show you three things. I want you to write about three things. I want you to write about what you have seen. I want you to write about the things that are, and I want you to write about the things that are going to take place after this. This verse, that one verse, verse 19, gives us the the basic outline of the book. First, what he had already seen in chapter 1 when the Lord says to him, write what you have seen. And what had he seen already when God says this to him? He had seen the first vision of Christ's return found in the first eight verses. So Jesus said, write down what you've already seen. Then the things which are. This refers to the things Jesus is about to reveal to him in chapters 2 and 3 regarding seven churches of his day that existed right then. And we're going to be looking at those churches as we go through this study. So says, I want you to write about the things that are. I'm going to show you. I'm going to talk to you and give you revelation about these seven churches. I want you to write about it. And the third thing, the things which shall be hereafter, which begin in chapter 4 and carry through to the end of the book in chapter 22. So, church, listen carefully. There you have an outline of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 deals with the things John had already seen. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with the things which are those seven churches. And chapters 4 through 22 focus on the things that shall be hereafter. In other words, 4 through 22 is all future prophetic. Now, another key to understanding this book is th- the revelation is not always chronological. Watch this. It's not always chronological. That is, John will sometimes jump from the future to the past, then back to the future. Let me give you an example. Jesus is born. We see Jesus born in chapter 12. We see him exalted in chapter 5. And we see him walking in the midst of his churches in chapter 1. That's not in chronological order, but that's the way it reads. Let me give you another example. The beast who attacks God's two witnesses in chapter 11, is not brought into existence until chapter 13. John is simply writing as it comes to him. He is receiving revelation straight from heaven. It is Jesus talking to him. Also, we will see that the revelation constantly uses words like Like, or as, or appeared to be, or something like. Here's why, because John is grasping for ways to describe what he's seeing. So he'll say, it was like this, it was like that, or appeared to be like this, or it appeared to be like that. He's using pictorial language through the use of metaphors and similes because he's really dumbstruck by a lot of what he sees. For instance, if you and I were watching an Amtrak train speed by, we might say something like, boy, it shot by me like a bullet. That's a simile, if you remember English. Or how about watching a firework display, we might say, boy, that skyrocket fell like a shooting star. You see what I'm saying? John does this all the time. He says well, he, he's shown these incredible things in heaven and on earth, the, the, this massive vision, and all he can do is say it was like this, it was like that. It was, it was, he's searching for words. There's a lot of times he, he almost seems dumbstruck, dumbfounded, speechless by the things that he sees. And I don't blame him. Neither will you once we get into some of this. He's a first-century man describing 20th and 21st century events the best that he can. It was like this. It was like that. It looked like this. It looked like that. It reminded me of this. It reminded me of that. Now, why should we even study the Revelation? Well, I want you to look around you at the interest when you teach this book. So, so why should we study the Revelation? Well, <laughs> my question is, why not? We should study the Revelation because it's a part of the Bible. It's God's Word, and all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. No story is complete without reading the last chapter. And Revelation is essentially the last chapter in God's book, describing how the beginning, recorded in Genesis, ends up in the end. Genesis, the book of the beginning. Revelation, the book of, what's the title of my book? The end. Revelation brings a sense of urgency. Oh, we're going to feel urgency? Some of you are going to walk out of here, head straight for a restaurant, grab the waitress and say, are you saved? And I believe that's one of the reasons Jesus gave it because it does bring urgency. Men must accept Christ now because Revelation events could begin, could kick off at any time. And most of all, There's a total of 66 books in our Bible, but get this, only one of them promises a special blessing for those who read and keep the words contained in it. Did you hear what I said? People say, we shouldn't study the Revelation, it's too complex, it's too hard to understand. Well, really? Because God says, if you'll read it and keep it, I'll give you a special blessing. Why would he make something impossible to understand if there's a special blessing in it for us? Now, I don't know about you, but I like getting blessed. I mean, hey, life is hard enough. You want to give me a blessing? Give me a blessing. I will take it all day and twice on Sunday. Give me a blessing. I'll take blessings. Now, there is a blessing for those who read this book and keep the words that are in it. Let's read it. Revelations 1, 3. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. So let's get blessed together. Amen? Let's get blessed together. You're going to have to stay with me. This is 22 chapters. It's going to be 14 to 16 weeks. But what else are you going to do on Wednesday night? Watch CBS, ABC, NBC. There's nothing there. Come and get blessed. So let's begin. Revelations 1, verse 1. Here's what John first heard. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John. Now, the word revelation is from a Greek word, apocalypsis. That's the Greek word. And you you recognize that word, don't you? Because we get what word from apocalypsis? The apocalypse. We get apocalypse. But it doesn't mean universal destruction like our English word does. That's not what it means. apocalypsis the Greek word means this, to bring to light what has been previously unknown because it was veiled. So the revelation, we're, we're told by the very name of it that this is something you and I would never, ever, if we lived to be a million years old, would never have known if it had not been unveiled and revealed to us the apocalypsis. The book of Revelation is not John's revelation, but it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, it says, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon come to pass. So God gave it to Jesus, and Jesus gave it to John, and John gave it to us. So what God is doing with the revelation, here's what he's doing. He's bringing out of hiding or out of cover, things that had never been revealed before. Before John wrote this down, no one knew these things, nobody. But he revealed them now to us by revelation, by apocalypse, by the unveiling and unfolding and revealing of what had formerly been hidden. It was given to show his servants from the early church all the way down to us things which must shortly take place. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, Jeff, wait a minute. It says must shortly take place. This was written 21 centuries ago. So what did he mean, must shortly take place? Because here we are in the 21st century and these things haven't happened yet. That little phrase, must shortly take place, is a Greek expression meaning this, a rapidity of execution once it does begin, a domino effect. So once the events in the Revelation start, it's going to be... One on another, after another, after another, like dominoes, 21 of them falling. We're also going to notice that the number seven, or multiples of seven, play a prominent role in the Revelation. In Bible numerology, the number seven means complete. Complete. Our first encounter with seven is found in Revelations 1, verse 4. Listen to what he says. This letter is from John to the seven churches... In the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the seven, there's another one, sevenfold spirit before his throne. Now, when we run across something like when I read sevenfold spirit, you go, What in the world does that mean? I'm going to explain it to you. So hang on to your seat because you will get an explanation. Let me tell you what it is. First, notice how the Lord Jesus. Is revealed as he who was who is and is to come Amen. now he talked. he mentioned seven spirits the seven spirits that John references are seven different manifestations or attributes that flow from God's majesty to the Messiah and we find them listed in Isaiah 11 verses 1 and 2 and let me just read it to you and it's in your book Here's what it says, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. That's talking about Jesus. Yes, a new branch, capital B, that's Jesus, bearing fruit from the old root, from the old covenant, the Old Testament. And look what it says. Here we go. And the number one, Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit, number two, wisdom. The Spirit, number three, and understanding. Number four, of counsel. Number five, of might. Number six, of knowledge. And number seven, of the fear of the Lord. So there you have the seven spirits that John references as being attributable to Jesus Christ. Now, next, John describes in verse seven the second coming of Christ at the end of the ages. We've read it, but I want to read it again. This is how the Amplified Bible is so powerful. Let's just read it together, can we? Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth shall gaze upon him and beat their breasts and mourn and lament over him. Even so must it be. Amen. So be it. Now, that's a great example of how John jumps to the end of things before he begins the beginning because he's got us now at the second coming of Christ at the very first chapter of the book. He's jumping ahead. When Christ Jesus returns, which is going to be the final climactic event of history as we know it, those who pierced him, the Jews, all the tribes of the earth, that means nations and people, will mourn, will literally beat themselves. Why will they do this? Because they will realize what they missed. They will see him. See, we're talking about uh, a visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ, not some spiritual thing where where, where he comes and nobody knows it, but he's coming back, and all the tribes, ethnicities of the nations will see him. Oh, no. It was true. Then in verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit wrapped in his power on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice like the calling of a war trumpet. When Jesus talks, it's like a trumpet. The voice he heard then instructed him. And I want you to look at the instruction. What you see, he said, write it in a book and send it to the seven churches. And thank God he did write it in a book, and you're holding the result in your hands. The seven churches he names were near Patmos. John was only about a rowboat away from their location there in Greece. And contrary to what some may think, these churches were not full of just believers. They were like our churches today, comprised of imperfect people, imperfect bodies of people, containing true believers and also containing unsaved professors, but not genuine possessors. That's why every Sunday we're seeing people saved because lost people come into the church and they come under conviction. The Holy Ghost gets a hold of them and they come to Christ. And maybe they thought when they walked in they were saved until the Holy Spirit convicted them. But we see it every week. And and John was writing, Jesus was speaking to these seven churches that had lost and found people in them, mainly found, but a lot of lost. And, And we'll see the way he addresses them. Jesus sends the equivalent of a postcard to each of these churches with a warning to the lost and correction to the saved. When John turned to see the the source of the voice, he saw something. You know, this voice speaks, and he turns around, and there is a vision. And he saw seven golden lampstands, Revelation 1.12, seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a a robe which reached to his feet and with a girdle of gold about his breast. Now, the lampstand that John mentions was a lamp holder with seven spiral extensions coming off of it, each extension containing oil and a wick. And we've seen them. I don't have a picture of one, but we've seen them. They, they, they have seven, seven holders, and, and all of the tops have, are lit, and it, it's, a, it's a lamp holder, a lamp stand. Now, interestingly, John's use of the phrase son of man has no article in it. The article means "the" in the Greek language. It simply reads, one like son of man. One like Son of Man. It's so definitive. His description of the risen Son of God is awesome. It is stunning. Let's look at it. In verse 13, he says he was clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, in the Bible, gold symbolizes deity, and it symbolizes deity in the Revelation. This golden band was like a thick belt around the waist of the son of God the same thing is described by Paul in Ephesians 6 where he says to you and to me gird yourself with the belt of truth same thing same idea same picture then verse 14 says his head and his hair were white like wool all you gray-headed people say amen praise the Lord I I love the way now look what he's doing They were like, here he's looking for words, they were, his head and hair were white, Uh, how white, like wool, white as snow, Uh, that's white, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Mm -mm -mm. Now remember the use of like and as, John is using the word like to describe what he saw the best that he could. White in the Bible, white hair depicts wisdom, it's out of Proverbs. Fire pictures cleansing, purging, and purifying judgment. Jesus' eyes were cleansing. His mere gaze had a purifying effect. When Jesus looked at you, he looked through you. He read your mail. So often it says in the Bible, he knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were about to say. He knew. He knew. That's Jesus. When he looked at you and when he, the risen Son of God looks at you, it cuts right through you. It purges. It cleanses. It purifies. Revelation 1.15 says, His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. Now, brass or bronze in the Bible is used to symbolize strength. His feet were strong His voice, like many waters, was commanding and awesome, like the sound of a mighty waterfall. His voice was major league commanding. Then John notes, he says, the risen, glorified Messiah is holding something. He said, I see him. Here he is, hair white like wool, flaming fires, feet like brass. And then he says, he's holding something. It says, He had in His right hand, verse 16, He had in His right hand seven stars, and out of His mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and His countenance, His face, was like the sun shining in its strength. We're going to see later in the book of Revelation that in the new Jerusalem that's coming, we don't need the sun anymore because the face of the Son of God will light that city So, first, seven stars. What in the world is that? He's holding seven stars in his right hand. Stars is from the Greek word asteros. We get asteroid and all that from asteros, and they represented the seven churches to whom John was initially address- addressing the revelation. Now, I've got to tell you, as a pastor, getting into this and reading this again and what we're about to see with the seven churches, it made me all over again when I say, oh, Jesus, this church is yours. And how many of you can say, I want Turning Point to be one of his stars, a a star in his hand? Amen? A star in his hand. The two-edged sword that went out of his mouth depicts judgment, particularly when he returns to judge the world. When he speaks, it will be like a sword that cuts and judges. When John sees all of this, it's about time, John, he faints. I'd have fainted before now, but he waited. He fainted finally. (laughs) And he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. People say, oh, an angel came up and said hello to me. No, he did not. Because if a real angel came up and said, uh, said hello to you, you'd faint like you were dead. You'd be trembling and shrieking. You do not say to an angel, hey, good to see you. Man, how's your day? That just doesn't happen. Here's Jesus. He sees Jesus and he falls like a dead man. Jesus laid his right hand on John and said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and I'm the last. And then in verse 18, he assures John that he holds the keys to death and Hades. Now, when you read about keys in the book of Revelation, they represent absolute control and authority, not just in Revelation but the whole Bible. Keys represent control and authority. And what we're being told here is no longer is the devil in control of death and hell. But the resurrected Jesus now holds the keys. The devil doesn't even have the keys to his own house anymore. That's what it's telling us. When Jesus rose from the dead, he got the keys. And as already mentioned, the outline to the entire book is stated in verse 19. It's worth repeating. Write the things you have seen, chapter 1, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, and the things which will take place after this, chapters 4 through 22. The glorified Messiah is informing John that he's about to be shown the future. The things which will take place after this. Folks, there's only one person who knows the future without mistake, fully, 100% accuracy, only one, and that's God. And God knows the future, every scintilla of it, every minutia involved in it. He knows the future. He knows your future and mine. He knows where our country is. He knows where our country is going. He knows where the world is and where the world is going. As we're about to see, he's got it all in his nail-scarred hands. So we have in the Revelation, we have the greatest book of prophecy ever written straight from the mouth of the risen Savior himself. The first chapter ends with a summation and an explanation of the things that John had just seen. So let's read verse 20. He says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches." Now notice, he says the seven stars were the angels. The the Greek word there is angelos, and it simply means messenger. That's all it means, messenger, angelos, angelos, messenger. And they were either the pastors or maybe even a literal angel commissioned to the churches. I personally believe it was the pastors because they're just messengers. So he's talking to the pastors and the congregation And we're going to look at three of them tonight before we close. We're going to see how Jesus knows what's going on in every church. He knows what's going on in this church. He knows every single member. He knows what's going on. The seven lampstands were the churches themselves. And as we're about to discover, the risen Messiah has a direct word for each of them. Now, let's look at a few of them. So, so far we've seen the glorified Messiah standing in the midst of seven lampstands and seven stars. Now, this is chapter 2 in the book. The stars were the angels, angelos, the messengers of the churches, the pastors. The lampstands were the churches themselves, and there were seven in all. Jesus is seen holding both the seven stars and the seven lampstands in his right hand. Aren't you glad to know Jesus is holding us right now? Isn't that good to know? And a two-edged sword, we saw, is coming out of his mouth, a picture of judgment when he speaks. Now, beginning with chapter 2, the risen Messiah addresses each of these seven churches. Let's look at a couple of them, and next week we'll finish, and we'll be able to go into some of the things that are yet to come starting even next week. We're going to be in chapter 4. The first church that John addresses is in Ephesus. It's the loveless church we're about to see. Now, The church of Ephesus was founded by Paul, and it prospered under the dark shadow of Diana worship. To this congregation, Paul sends his marvelous Ephesian epistle, emphasizing spiritual riches, the spiritual walk, and spiritual warfare. The city of Ephesus was the manufacturing center for the statues of Diana, and Diana was the goddess of sex. So everybody say with me, there's nothing new under the sun. You think it's tempting in our culture, and there's no doubt it is. But here was the Ephesian church in a sex-saturated, even sex-worshipping culture. It was a city infected with deep immorality, existing off of temple prostitution and paganism. So the church at Ephesus was surrounded by massive sexual perversion and personal temptation. And no wonder John or, or Paul gave them Ephesians 6 and the whole message on put on the full armor of God and spiritual warfare. Now we notice that Jesus' first comments to them are positive. Matter of fact, he starts out this way with all of them. I like, I like that about Jesus. He lets you down easy because he starts positive and then he nails you with what he's not happy with. There's only one out of the seven churches that do not get that, but I have this against you. Only one. And that's Philadelphia, but we'll come to that. But let's look at what he says to the Ephesian church. He says, I know all the things that you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not, so they had been discerning. You have discovered they are liars, and they weren't afraid to say it. You have patiently suffered for me, and you haven't quit. Well, this is all good stuff from Jesus. So their pluses were these, hard work, patient endurance, intolerance of evil, discernment, and patient suffering without giving up and putting up the white flag and quitting. But the Lord's next statements are strongly corrective. Look what he says in verse 4. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Ouch. Everybody say ouch. Now, these seven churches are really types of all churches. You can read, as we go through these seven, you're going to see bits and pieces of every church you've ever been in. These seven churches are examples of what all churches can learn from. And look what had happened to this Ephesian church. You don't love me or each other like you did at first. But wait a minute, Lord, how could that be? We're doing everything right. Because you can do everything right in the wrong spirit. Jesus says, look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, now this, this next part scares me. I don't like this next part, but I'm glad it's here because look what he says. I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Translated, you will die. You'll no longer be a church. Woo! Now, folks, he's the Lord of the church. And look what he's, he's in charge of the lampstand. Now, the lampstand means the life of the church the vitality of the church, the anointing on that church, the ministry of that church. He says, if you don't get back to your first love, love me like you used to, and love one another like you used to, one follows the other, I'm going to come, and and you may not even know it for a while, but I'm going to take that lampstand out. And, and, And discerning people will walk in and they'll go, something's different. What is going on here? You know, it, it seems right, but but then again, it doesn't seem right. It's, it, it seems like they're doing everything good, but, but but something is missing. Something's lacking. There's a thud in my spirit. I, I've got to check, but I don't know why. There's no more life. There's no more flow. It's religious. It's dead. And, and who did it? Jesus came along and just took the lampstand away. Does that happen now, Jeff? Oh, I know a lot of churches that used to be, and they're not now. The Ephesian church finally wilted and died. So it it puts the fear of the Lord in us, doesn't it? That We need to be sure not so... uh, I pulled a nugget for every one of these churches. Here's the nugget I came up with for this one. All ministry should flow out of love and devotion for the Lord Jesus, not for fame, money, or power, but out of love for him. That's the message of the Ephesian church. So why do we do what we do? We do it for him. Why do we preach the gospel? For him. Why do we love one another? For him. Okay, Now, the second church is in Smyrna. We're going to do two more, and we're done. The second church is in Smyrna. It is the persecuted church that persevered. The city of Smyrna was one of wealth and greatness, yet many in this church were suffering in poverty and persecution. And Jesus assures them he's aware of their oppression and aware of their poverty, and he actually tells them that, in fact, they are wealthy in what truly matters. Knowledge of salvation is true wealth. Amen? I look at billionaires and trillionaires that are in our world today, and, and, I, and I read about their life. And you read about it all the time, these stupidly wealthy Hollywood actors and actresses who make cajillions of dollars for one movie. But you read about their life, and their lives are they their lives collapse, their relationships collapse. They, they have so much monetarily and, and, and so many so many goods and so much stuff, but inside they don't have true wealth because true wealth is Jesus. In Smyrna, their persecutions originated with false teachers that were rising up to oppose true Christianity. And Jesus assures them, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison. Look how he knew the future to test you. You're going to suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Now, clearly, 10 days is symbolic. The ten days spoken of likely referred to the ten terrible periods of persecution unleashed by the Roman Empire from around 64 to 316 A.D. They were were terribly persecuted by ten Roman emperors. So I believe Jesus was alluding to that. So look, he looked down the tunnel of time three centuries and said, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to go through it, but if you'll be faithful, I'm going to give you a crown of life. This crown of life is one of five crowns listed in Scripture, specifically promised for faithful obedience. And here's the nugget Jesus knows exactly what you're going through and what you will go through. And he's there to strengthen you and ultimately reward you. And I want to stop right there. In this good stuff, Now, um, next week, we're going to finish the churches and get right into the things that will be. And it's amazing. It is amazing stuff. And you're going to go, wow, that's all around us right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's why you're here tonight. So can we stand up and let's pray? And I'm going to pray, and Brenda's going to come up and give the shout so that I can zip back there And get to the table and sign your books. And uh, thank you for, are you glad you came tonight? Amen. Now, I'm gonna, I want us to pray together that God will help us to be faithful throughout this series because there's a blessing in it. There's a blessing in it. So I encourage you to come back, bring somebody with you. Hey, what a great atmosphere to get saved in. Amen. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you right now for the incredible, powerful Word of God, the apocalypsis. Thank you for the unveiling of this incredible revelation. And, Lord, we give ourselves to you. This church, Lord, if we can just humbly ask you, this church would be one of your lights that you hold in your right hand. Lord, we study these things so that perhaps we would never lose that lampstand, that we would be true to the end. And, Lord, we just give turning point to you. Now, everyone listening by radio and Internet and streaming video, we pray you will help every listener to be touched by the power of your word, changed and transformed in the name of Jesus.